0: Join hosts Ben Schiller and Danny Nelson as they seize the world of crypto.
1: Hello, and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network. And my name is Ben Schiller. I'm the features editor here at Coindesk. And joining me today is Danny Nelson. Hi, Danny. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm good. Uh, It was a tough week for CoinDesk last week with a series of layoffs that we were impelled to make. How are you feeling about all that? You know, it's a tough
2: situation. You got to just keep looking forward. Right now, I'm looking forward to the next step of my day, which will be procuring a sandwich. So, Ben, I have to ask you, are you like, what's your stance on cheesesteaks?
1: I'm not a big fan of cheesesteaks. i kind of uh, gone off meat recently, but uh, I... Off meat? Res- what are
2: you, a communist? What's uh, this? Um,
1: maybe I'm a communist, but I'm definitely off meat. And, uh, but I appreciate and respect anyone who does like cheesesteaks, and I know that's a popular thing down your way. Yes, in Philadelphia, and of course, Philadelphia, on my mind, later
2: in today's show, we will be having a guest who had a, a recent stint in Philadelphia before moving to more tropical pastures, but more on that later.
1: That's right. Uh, That that pasture would be El Salvador, and we'll get to that in a minute. Okay, so um, what's on your sort of docket in terms of work, Danny?
2: On my docket, I'm going to be later today thinking about BASE, what's going on with that network, the Coinbase's blockchain. What's going on in terms of activity on BASE? I don't have an answer for you yet because I haven't
1: started the story. Okay. I mean, it seems to get quite a lot of attention, this base product, and maybe more than you might expect in a down market like we have. And that seems to be linked to a couple of sort of hypey projects like uh, Friendstech. Yes. As far as I know, FriendTech
2: is a platform that lets you buy and sell shares in other people in a social media setting. I don't fully understand it, but the big ball of money that moves between different ideas in crypto from ordinals to, I don't know, other NFTs, into DeFi. Right now it's focusing on friend tech, like a tropical storm passing over a city. And that's where the money is. I don't know how to make the money though. That's why I'm here on this podcast.
1: Right. So you seem to think that that's like hot money. That's not like real money. Well. People really investing in the project. It's more speculation. Oh, a hundred percent. Maybe, maybe
2: some of those people, maybe 10 of the 20 people who use it might stick around to actually utilize it. But right now it is succeeding, Because it is appealing to people who think, I can make money on this thing. They're not so concerned with what that thing is beyond what they need to understand in order to exploit it. And that's by design, right? That's with all these crypto systems. It's an incentive mechanism. How do we monetize and gamify a system to get people engaged? And then can we retain that engagement and carry it forward so that people actually use the thing? So right now, Frentech is having its boom. What will happen next? If it's like every other crypto anything, then much of the activity will dissipate as the big ball of money moves elsewhere.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay. On that note of uh, cynicism, let's move on to our next segment. Cynicism, pragmatism. Pragmatism, skepticism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Let's move on to our next segment. All right, we're going to get to our next segment now. And we're joined by Liz Napolitano. She's a regulatory reporter here at Coindesk. Hi, Liz.
0: Hey, Ben. Nice to be here.
1: Thanks for coming on. So uh, you've been reporting a lot on SPF and his upcoming trial, which is set for October. Just give us an update on that and particularly, what is the emerging thinking about SPF's defense strategy? How is he going to try to defend himself from all of these charges? Because if he doesn't, presumably, he's going to end up serving a lot of jail time.
0: Yeah, I should start by saying that, yes, I've been covering the SPF hearings leading up to the trial for Sam Beming-Fried this October. Right now, Sam faces, I think, about possibly 70 plus years in jail, in prison, rather, if he's convicted of the counts he faces. He faces seven different counts, which include, you know, wire fraud, conspiracy to commit securities fraud, conspiracy to commit commodities fraud, just a lot of different things. You really don't want to be Sam right now, uh, <laughs> suffice it to say. Leading up to the trial, I mean, it, it would appear that the strategy that Sam and his lawyers are going to go for is one of, you know, the blame the lawyer's defense, right? Sam is obviously quite young. You know, he's a 30, 31-year-old Vunderkin, you know, J.P. Morgan of crypto. So his lawyers are going to argue that he was acting on the advice of lawyers for FTX or, you know, Alameda, who had instructed him about how to set up, you know, shell companies in different far-flung locales in the Caribbean. There's also indication that he might try to blame other individuals as well. If you recall, during SBF's big apology tour of fall 2022, he was blaming just about everyone. Caroline Ellison former, you know, co-CEO of Alameda Research and his former paramour, blaming other executives, uh, high up people in his companies. So we could see that type of strategy playing out. Basically, I think they're going to throw a lot of things at the wall and see what sticks.
1: Right. So the idea is that he was kind of an innocent abroad. He was doing his best and these lawyers were leading him astray. Exactly. So Liz, you've been one of the many reporters going
2: into the courtroom to see this play out. What's it like in there?
0: Well, it depends. I mean, on some days I am in, you know, the main room where they're conducting the hearing. And on some days I'm in the overflow room because it's so crowded and I just can't get in. It's packed with reporters. But, you know, when I do get to be in the main room, it's usually just very somber vibe. I mean, obviously Sam is facing very serious charges. So sometimes we see Sam and Sam's mother and father there and they're very serious face, you know, poker face, uh, not really revealing much. I, I know if my, my parents were there, you know, they would crack me. They would not be as silent as uh, Sam's parents have been. Do
2: you think that if you were a defendant in a courtroom, your parents would crack you in the courtroom?
0: Uh, Yeah, entirely. And the thing is, my father's a lawyer, right? My father was an ADA in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. If I were facing charges that serious, my mother would drag me off like the, <laughs> the chair and oh. uh, crack me. So I don't know, maybe Sam needed to have my parents and then uh, he wouldn't be in this position.
2: <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like a bad legal strategy to me. <laughs>
0: Well, it's not legal, but it's a strategy.
1: I mean, it seemed from the uh, original hearing that he had down the extradition hearing that he had in the Bahamas that his parents were sort of incredulous about these charges, that the you know, authorities had no right or reason to really bring all these charges against their son. So do you think that they've come around to accepting that he's really in deep water?
0: Well, I mean, he's their sonny boy, right? I mean, like, he's very brilliant. You know, he was working at like a quant trading firm. He was very highly educated. Uh, you know, I can imagine if I were those parents and I put that much time and money and effort into my son's upbringing. And uh, then I found out that he was, you know, robbing people blind left and right, that I'd be a little <laughs> taken aback. And they were right because his mother apparently was um, laughing and crying and a whole mix of emotions during the first hearing. I mean, I yeah. wasn't there for the first hearing in the Bahamas. That was our previous court reporter, Cheyenne Lagon. But I was there for the second hearing, and by that time, they had, yeah, they had much more of a poker face. They weren't really revealing how they were feeling as much. Certainly when he went to jail during this latest hearing about a little over a week ago, they looked like they had been gut punched. His mother was keeping it together when they were exiting the courthouse, but once she got into the car, she just one of our CDTV reporters who was with us said that he saw her just break down crying. So
1: you mentioned that this is a popular trial to cover or proceedings to cover from the sort of journalist community. What sort of journalists are in there? I mean, presumably the, the kind of crypto media are in there and maybe the kind of finance and business media are in there as well. But is there more mainstream journalistic appeal to this story?
0: I think it depends, right? I think that during the first day of the trial, we're going to see, you know, this rush of general mainstream media interest and they're going to swoop in and cover it for a day or two and say, hey, remember this guy that stole billions of, you know, imaginary money on the Internet? Oh, yeah, he's uh, getting tried now. And then it's gonna kind of fade from the public consciousness. Even as outrageous as Sam's crimes were, I think that the, especially in, in a space like crypto, right? Where, you know, it's basically the whole space is just ridden with crime. Things have a way of kind of fading from the public consciousness. So I think there's not gonna be some mainstream media interest in the beginning, to go back to your question, but not a whole lot. It's gonna fall off after a couple of days. And then I think the people who are gonna stay around and cover it are, like you say, you know, the crypto trade pubs, Coindesk, you know, the block, the crypt. There's gonna be uh you know, CNBC covering it because they have some crypto reporters. And then the inner city press guy that beat us on headlines last oh, time. Yeah.
2: What's, what's he like? He, well, he beats everyone on everything. He lives there. Doesn't he like live in the walls of the courtroom?
0: Made me so mad. I was so like, I, I, well, here's the thing. We were, we were a little bit annoyed, but we also wanted to know his secrets, right? Because there's just something about this man. Like He doesn't look like he's going to beat you to the punch like that. But for some reason, he's like, you know, a bat out of hell. When, when the judge gave the decision, like I'm, I'm telling you, I was sitting in the last row of the overflow room, getting ready to sprint out of there the minute that the judge said that the bail was being revoked. I ran down the stairs. I almost tripped in the elevator. And somehow the inner city press guy still got the headline out before me. So, you know, I'd love to know what his secret is.
1: So they chose to revoke the, the bail that he was on and he's back in jail now. Does he still have access to his VPNs and his privacy-preserving communication systems like Signal, or is he now excluded from all that sort of stuff?
0: So he's at MDC in Brooklyn right now, so we're basically neighbors, I guess. Uh, and he's, um, you know, that prison is not known for having good Wi-Fi connection, among other things. It also has a dearth of toilets and inadequate lighting. But uh, yeah, suffice it to say, the connection there is not great, so I doubt he has access to VPN or anything, really, or any type of technology. Then again, I've seen prisoners doing TikToks from inside prisons, so <laughs> I imagine that somehow people are getting technology in there. I guess the question is, does SBF have the street cred and the connections to get some tech inside a prison? That we're gonna have to say. But you know, on a more serious note, also um, there is talk that while he doesn't have you know much access to technology right now in MDc. They might transfer him to a place like, I think it's Putnam County Prison, and that place has has a better connection. They have computers, apparently. There's a place where he could go and, you know, communicate with his lawyers and prepare his defense. In that case, I guess if he has some computer access, then potentially he could access the Internet. But I think that this time around, the judge is going to make sure that he isn't going to be able to circumvent the restrictions on his bail like he has in the past.
1: So it's been a big question around SPF, you know, leading up to this trial, whether he should be talking to the media or not. You know, we've had people on Coindesk TV, for instance, saying he should just shut up. He would be much better off to staying quiet. What is the sense in which, from your point of view, whether this kind of talking to everybody strategy that he's had is going to play out or, or benefit him, in your opinion? And do you think it really is a strategy or is it just the fact that he's used to kind of having a big mouth? and? having everyone listen to him, that he can't help himself. I mean, is, is it a strategy or just sort of a default kind of behavior from him?
0: I imagine, I mean, my personal opinion here, not as a reporter, but just as an individual, I think he can't help himself. I mean, I can imagine that you, his lawyers, like you think Cohen is telling him like, oh yeah, talk to the press or yeah, whatever, do what you want. They must be telling him, like they must be beating him over the head with it. Shut your mouth. But, you know, he keeps going. So, I mean, if you're going to keep going like that, clearly, uh, you know, you got it in you You got that fire in you, you got to assert your innocence. And I mean, listen, he's got the First Amendment right to assert his innocence, you know, and that's protected. And that's not necessarily a danger to the community or, you know, something that would lead to the revocation of bail in and of itself, right? Like he's allowed to talk to the press. The issue here is that he was speaking to the press, and he was implicating other people or, you know, smearing other people's reputations, sharing diary entries, when it's not even really clear how he got the diaries in the first place, it's another thing we should probably talk about. But uh, communicating with people, you know, through signal, telling them kind of creepy things that would make it sound like they're going to get in trouble if they don't, you know, go with the same story as him. So um, there's some issues with him, the way he's been communicating, right, with right. people on the outside. And that's what's gotten him into trouble.
1: Right. So just to catch our listeners up there on what we mean by the diaries. So this relates to a story in the New York Times about three weeks ago now which published the private diaries of Caroline Ellison, who was the co-CEO of Alameda Research and right at the heart of this alleged fraud and was also allegedly in a romantic relationship with SBF. And these diaries appeared in the New York Times and were said by the prosecution to have influenced Caroline Ellison and to potentially get her to not be a full witness, basically a form of witness tampering, And that was one of the main reasons he was sent to to jail as he awaits trial in October. Well, thank you very much, Liz, for updating us on SPF and uh, the legal proceedings there. And this is one to watch through the fall, I think. So uh, hopefully you'll come back on and tell us more about it.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: All right, let's get to our next segment then. We're joined today by Jonathan Martin. He is a graduate student at the Wharton School at Pennsylvania University, and he is on a big journey this summer around El Salvador. And El Salvador, of course, is the first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. So Jonathan is down there searching how that's going, and uh, he's going to give us an update from his perspective. Jonathan, welcome to the show.
3: And Danny, thanks for having me.
1: Great to have you on. So just tell us about this trip. I mean, why did you plan to go down there and and what are you doing down there?
3: Yeah. So my passion for Bitcoin developed about three years ago. Uh, I was orange pilled by reading the Bitcoin Standard by Safdie and and decided at some point I wanted to make this my career. I spent this past year uh, in Philadelphia at the Wharton School and uh, wanted to take some time to immerse myself in the Bitcoin economy, the world's first circular Bitcoin economy here in El Salvador see whether the currency was actually being used as a medium of exchange. For most Western investors, we tend to have a low time preference for money. A lot of Bitcoiners are hodlers. We expect the value to go up over time, but not a lot of people transact in it. So for me, it was a question of, are Salvadoran nationals actually using it as a currency? Is the reality any different than what you hear from political leaders or see on Twitter uh, from people promoting the Chivo Wald and you know, other associated Salvadoran projects?
1: Right. So you've written a couple of pieces for us as you, as you make your way around El Salvador. What have you found so far in terms of whether people are using Bitcoin for transactions for, uh, you know, mediums of exchange as you mentioned that?
3: You know, I, I would say we're still very much in the first inning of adoption here in El Salvador. Been around the capital, San Salvador, and also down to the beach area, uh, Bitcoin Beach and El Tunco. And there's some vendors that utilize Bitcoin, but for the most part, it's pretty rare. Most people prefer cash and, you know, I think a big part of it was it was put into law by the president, uh, you know, part of his effort to revolutionize the economy. But there wasn't a lot of an educational component with it. So if you're not a Bitcoiner, it's not you know, necessarily the most intuitive digital commodity to use. So there's definitely still a gap between, you know, the education gap of, of people actually understanding how to use the system, understand the difference between Lightning and the underlying layer one blockchain. And I, I think there's still a lot of work to go here.
1: So if it's legal tender, then presumably merchants are required to offer a service to allow you to pay in Bitcoin. Is that true?
3: That is what the law says. In my experience, it's maybe five percent of merchants want Bitcoin, and I would say vast majority don't have Bitcoin point of sale devices. So, you know, despite it being a law, I've kind of heard mixed responses when trying to transact in Bitcoin, like either their system isn't working or I'm not even sure if some of them even have the point of sale devices. So it's still very much in its infancy despite it being legislated that you're supposed to accept both Bitcoin and the U.S. dollar here.
2: To participate in the system, do you need to have, what is it called, the Shivo wallet? Or could you have just any old Bitcoin wallet to interact with the system?
3: Yeah, so Shivo is uh, the program that, you know, Kelly championed for Salvador Nationals. But I've been able to use my Coinbase wallet and as well as my wallet of Satoshi for Lightning transactions. Quite a few people here uh, prefer to use Link wallets, which uh, are Lightning-based wallets also. But I have uh, encountered people using Chivo wallets. So there is the ability to use other wallets outside of the Chivo system for transactions. But I would actually say Blink wallets have been more common than uh, Chivo wallets, that people that actually accept Bitcoin for commerce, that's been kind of the gold standard so far.
1: What have you actually bought or transacted with using Bitcoin while you've been there?
3: Yeah, you know, so uh, everywhere I go, I try to use Bitcoin first. And, you know, either wallet of Satoshi or my Coinbase wallet. And the most success I've had have been on Bitcoin Beach, uh, where people are using their Blink wallets or using the map in the Blink wallet itself. It tells you which vendors use it or accept uh, Lightning payments. And then, you know, uh, here in San Salvador, uh, it was actually it was a 15-year-old kid who had a Chivo wallet in the store in the center of the city, El Centro. So I think a big component of it is this kind of younger generation uh, being introduced to this technology at a much earlier age. And that in mind, I think it could be you know, potentially decades until it's commonly used as a medium of exchange primarily with these people that are kind of growing up using it as opposed to trying to re-educate the, the current people working in most of these businesses who are you know have been using cash their entire lives.
2: How prevalent is the discussion around Bitcoin like at the national level? Are politicians talking about this program still?
3: Yeah, you know th- this is a large component of uh, Bukele's rebranding effort that compared with the security policies. I'd say it's very much top of mind for people. Um, you know I've encountered a few folks who've referred to it as Bukele's money. Uh, the issue has been politicized somewhat in that, you know, some point to, uh, you know, some of the early struggles with Chivo as a reflection of, of Bukele. Uh, he's kind of tethered his fate to the success of Bitcoin in some ways. And, you know, I, I would say so far, like us being in crypto winter, it's it's still like you can see adoption still happening. Uh, and I think maybe, you know, more use cases and greater adoption will occur once we're in the throes of another bull run, whenever they may, may happen in the next uh, 24 to 36 months.
1: Right. So, so El Salvador is an important kind of test case for the Bitcoin community and there's been a lot of interest outside the country in this experiment. Are you encountering a lot of foreign nationals down there being part of this boomlet?
3: Just this past weekend, I was in Playa San Blas, which is close to El Zante Beach, which is a Bitcoin beach. And there are quite a few expats who moved here for you know, political reasons or were drawn because of the utilization of Bitcoin. And that, that community is, is definitely thriving. I know some folks from Australia, New Zealand, as well as the U.S. and Canada. Uh, So people that left their home countries for whatever reason, and have based large percentages of their net worth in Bitcoin just because of the associated flexibility and freedom in utilizing Bitcoin versus, you know, traditional rails.
1: Do you think it's a good thing for Bitcoin that El Salvador is the test case for adoption in this way? I mean, I guess you could see it both ways. On the one hand, it's sort of a tabula rasa where you can kind of build on a system that doesn't really hasn't really reached maturity. And therefore, you could see a need for Bitcoin playing a role. I mean, it wouldn't presumably play so much of a role here in the United States where we have a kind of working payment system. People are used to using credit cards and so on. On the other hand, it is kind of a, an undeveloped country, relatively speaking. So that would seem to preclude the use of Bitcoin, which is, after all, sort of a more of a modern world thing at the moment. How do you see that kind of conundrum there? Because uh, maybe you could see it
3: both ways. I think there's some benefits to having a blank slate. This concept of technology leapfrogging, where you don't necessarily have to undo uh, legacy systems when implementing a new system. So starting with the youth, uh, encouraging them to use Chivo and, and Blink and other Bitcoin wallets and applications. So, you know, a lot of these people are smartphone natives, digital natives, right? So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why it, it, really, it really could work and should work over time. And, you know, you may run into additional challenges if you were to try and uh, do the same thing in a more developed economy. There's more kind of powers that be, right, vested power structures that may be harder to convince some of those people, especially the ones with wealth over the age of 65, to transition to this new system. So I think there's some benefits to introducing Bitcoin in an economy that's just now emerging from a civil war from 1979 to 1992, and then 30 years of gang violence. Now they've solved those problems, uh, this blank slate, this opportunity to, you know, lead El Salvador into a new future.
2: Now, is it good for Bitcoin to be associated, not, not with El Salvador specifically, but just with a nation state saying, we as a nation state want Bitcoin to be this thing for us? Like, is that, no matter who it is, a good thing for Bitcoin in your opinion?
3: I think so. I think you need real world uses of Bitcoin, right? So you can go through the trials and tribulations of trying to convince an entire populace to use this new monetary currency, monetary technology. And you learn by doing, right? So uh, it's, it's been interesting talking to some of the entrepreneurs in this country who have thought through some of those problems. How do we spur mass adoption, make the frictional costs lower? You know, I think some of the layer one ATMs, their business models may not necessarily survive in the long run. Just uh, when you have a 5% frictional fee to convert from fiat into Bitcoin. That already kind of limits uh, your potential addressable market. Right. So I, I think people thinking through some of the issues here, uh, it's sort of a proving ground for what I think will be you know, adopted a much broader scale. The, the Bitcoin standard, it, it had to start somewhere. Right. So a country that's emerging from previous era of you know, 2015, El Salvador was the most dangerous country in the world. And today people are moving back. Right? People are starting businesses and it feels like there's new hope for the future. Right. So I think it's, it, it's in a lot of ways, it's, it's actually kind of the ideal situation to try and implement a new technology, kind of a nascent economy that's looking to uh, rebrand itself.
1: Thank you very much, Jonathan Martin. Jonathan Martin is on a journey around El Salvador, uh, exploring how that country is adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. And he's writing up uh, a series of stories for us at Coindesk. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Okay, we're going to get to a new segment this week. Uh, It is entitled Things We Are Freaking Out About. And we didn't just make up that title exactly. Uh, This comes from a pretrial proceeding document that was released last week by prosecutors in the SBF trial that we just mentioned with Liz. And it refers to something that Caroline Ellison said of Sam, that she kept a list of things that Sam is freaking out about. So we're going to do the same here and say what we're freaking out about And I'm going to turn it over to Danny, and he's going to tell you what's on his mind. Danny?
2: What's on my mind? I have to say, what's on my mind has absolutely nothing to do with crypto, but... Yes, we want the crypto mind. The crypto mind? I've got nothing to the crypto mind. My mind right now is full of french fries, because a former colleague of ours, Eli Tan, he just came out with a big story in the Washington Post about the town in the United States that is the leading producer of frozen french fries worldwide. Wow. Worldwide. Where is it? It's in Othello, Washington. It's actually a story about climate change because you know if I say if I say potatoes, what state do you think of? Idaho. Exactly, Idaho. But with climate change, that means that where things are being produced is changing too. And so Washington, which is of course next to Idaho, it's becoming a more ideal location for growing potatoes. And this one town is just in a boom time because it produces fifteen percent of all potatoes for the U.S. So I don't know. I'm just thinking I need to get in the French fry business. Like this one company has invested $400 million just in Othello, Washington. Imagine if anyone invested $400 million in crypto, right? That's bigger than all of Solana DeFi. You have all of Solana DeFi over here, or you have the the number one producer of French fries in the United States. Where are you going to put your money? I think French fries. That's
1: That's a growth market for me. Yeah, I mean, French fries never go out of style, do they? No. So, uh, you know, I guess Idaho's loss is uh, Washington's gain here. Absolutely,
2: right? And we, we just have to wonder, where's the flyer going next? Ben, what's on your mind? What's quite your gears?
1: I am freaking out about the state of the weather these days. It just seems like it's unbearably hot uh, in New York City today. It's like 92 degrees. It's very humid. The AC in the office isn't working properly, uh, which is kind of annoying. And then as you look around the world, it just seems like one cluster buck after another, the floods, the tropical storms in LA these days. Which there was an earthquake too, right? They, they're they're an flooded earthquake. and they have an earthquake. What a combo. And, uh, you know, all these kind of arguments about climate change, is it real or not? I mean, it just seems silly because it's clearly real and it's clearly happening as we speak. uh, And it just makes me feel very uncomfortable about the future and whether we should bring more kids into this world. uh, And and, uh, I'm just very pessimistic about the future of the world uh, if things are going to be like this. And maybe we should just all go off to our little bubble in the woods and uh, trade our crypto and not have to deal with all this uh, incessant bad weather.
2: Well, Jesus Christ, Ben, I I was here talking about hash browns and you're talking about how we're all hashed to shit. Like what what's going on here I just feel very uh, pessimistic about the future of the world I mean uh, do you think we should think- be Bitcoin mining in this environment right like if we if this is so bad and it is I agree with you should we shouldn't we not be taking everything off the table that we possibly can including Bitcoin mining
1: well I'm a big fan of Bitcoin mining because it serves a, a social purpose of decentralizing money so I think that's a worthwhile thing and uh, I think the uh, the idea that Bitcoin mining uses same hash power or the same energy as you know sweden or ireland is kind of ridiculous and there are many ways to mitigate it and you should watch our uh, recent mining week because you can find out that it can actually play a useful role in furthering renewable energy which is surely the solution to uh, many of our problems with climate change
2: well you know when you put it all into perspective i guess the layoffs at coindesk last week weren't so bad given that we're all screwed by the climate anyway so that's a happier note to end on at least for the office
1: yep it's uh the apocalypse watch here okay uh let's wrap up the show thanks very much danny for giving us your insight and sometime downer comments today but uh we'll come back to this next week and thanks very much danny anything you want to add to that you know ben there's there's truly nothing more to say right uh i guess
2: hold your loved ones close and more importantly like and subscribe to this podcast thank you very much we'll see you next week
0: Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.
3: Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader.